Good morning. My name is Mary. I would like to welcome everyone to the JetBlue Airways third quarter 2020 earnings conference call. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. I would like to turn the call over to JetBlue's Vice President of Investor Relations, David Simpson. Please go ahead. Thanks, Mary. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us for our third quarter 2020 earnings call. This morning, we issued our earnings release, our investor update, and a presentation that we'll reference during this call. All of those documents are available on our website at investor.jetblue.com and have been filed with the SEC. Joining me here in New York to discuss our results are Robin Hayes, our Chief Executive Officer, Joanna Garrity, our President and Chief Operating Officer, and Steve Priest, our Chief Financial Officer. Also joining us for Q&A are Scott Lawrence, Head of Revenue and Planning, and Dave Clark, VP of Sales and Revenue Management. This morning's call includes forward-looking statements about future events. Actual results may differ materially from those expressed in forward-looking statements due to many factors, and therefore, investors should not place undue reliance on these statements. For additional information concerning factors that could cause results to differ from the forward-looking statements, please refer to our press release, 10Q, and other reports filed with the SEC. Also during the course of our call, we may discuss several non-GAAP financial measures. For reconciliation of these non-GAAP measures to GAAP measures, please refer to the table at the end of our earnings release, a copy of which is available on our website. And now I'd like to turn the call over to Robin Hayes, JetBlue CEO. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'd like to start with my thanks to our crew members for their dedication to our customers. I also want to thank our crew members for their sacrifice during the most difficult period in our 20-year history. We are now over seven months into the pandemic, and day in and day out, our crew members deliver on our mission to inspire humanity. Their dedication and passion for delivering outstanding service has been truly remarkable, especially as we work to restore our customers' confidence in air travel. We have responded to this unprecedented crisis with action, leading the industry with health and safety protocols to keep our crew members and customers safe. We're grateful to all of our team to bring in our industry-leading safety from the ground up program to life every day. Our customers are recognizing their efforts and we are seeing record high customer satisfaction scores as a result of their professionalism and care. Let's uh, Let's turn to slide four of our presentation. In the third quarter, we reported an adjusted loss of $1.75 per share. Despite the ongoing demand challenges, we have worked to stabilize and protect JetBlue. Our efforts to raise liquidity, reshape our network, and reduce our costs are bearing fruit and have helped us navigate the immediate crisis. We remain cautiously optimistic that we will see further steady improvement in bookings into the upcoming holiday season. We have seen signs of pent-up demand from customers who want to visit their family and friends or go on vacation, and we believe that we will remain extremely well positioned to serve these customers as they return to air travel. Moving now to slide five. We are confident that our low-cost, low-fare leisure model with the best crew members in the industry and the brand that customers trust will all help help JetBlue to emerge stronger from the crisis. Since March, we have been focused on a three-step recovery process. First, we have made great strides in reducing our cash burn. 
We continue to manage our daily flying and take tactical actions to ensure we generate cash as demand recovers. Secondly, to rebuild our margins, we are executing on revenue and cost initiatives. Our margins today reflect the challenging revenue environment, and in the near term, we are redeploying our aircraft to new cash-accretive markets where we see demand. Further out, we are setting JetBlue up for a strong rebound, taking advantage of opportunities in our network and strengthening our focus cities to produce structurally better margins in the coming years. Starting in the Northeast, we are building a strategic partnership with American Airlines. We believe this alliance, which is currently under regulatory review, will help accelerate our recovery, preserve jobs, and allow us to continue our 20-year track record of disrupting the market with low fares and great service. I'd like to pause for a moment and highlight that while we are grateful to Washington for helping to save our industry in the spring, JetBlue made a clear choice this past summer to accelerate the speed of our recovery from the crisis when we announced our exciting New York and Boston partnership with American. We've been working tirelessly with both DOT and DOJ and want to thank the leadership teams of each agency for their team's serious attention to reviewing our proposal. Getting, getting this partnership off the ground quickly is critical to our self-help effort to expand low fares in New York and Boston and get us on the road to a faster recovery and job growth. In other parts of our network, we are positioning JetBlue for future success at LAX and Newark, making our Transcon franchise stronger. In Fort Lauderdale, we are adding connectivity to enhance our position in South Florida and in the Latin and Caribbean region. We are looking forward to reaping of our JetBlue travel product subsidiary. As demand recovers, we believe it will give us a competitive advantage in providing a unique value offering to leisure travelers who are looking for a trusted brand that offers flexibility and a personalized experience. On the cost side, our teams are working to realign JetBlue's cost structure to a temporarily smaller revenue base. Steve will provide some early details about our efforts that we believe will help us remain true to our low-cost routes as we recover from the crisis. Finally, in terms of balance sheet, we have successfully raised more than $4 billion since March, and we have access to further capital should we need it. Naturally, we aim to be, uh, naturally, we aim to be free cash flow positive with the goal of repairing our balance sheet over the coming years. Of course, the timing will largely be a result of executing on our cost initiatives and the pace of demand returning. As we look forward to the expected recovery, we continue to work with our elected leaders to help find the best public policies and technologies that will support a safe return to travel. Rapid testing, we believe, can help reopen domestic and international markets and be a critical step in balancing public health considerations while promoting an economic recovery. The landscape continues to evolve, and we are cautiously optimistic that we will see major advancements in this space in the near future. Before closing, and on behalf of all of our crew members, I would like to take a moment to thank the federal government and their advisors for their continued support. The CARES Act Payroll Support and Loan Program has helped save many jobs at JetBlue and across the country. The reality is that we are still navigating this unprecedented crisis, and we expect demand to remain depressed for some time. We're optimistic that the leaders of our country will soon find a path to provide additional support for jobs in our industry, giving us vital time to execute our recovery plan.
Thanks again to our amazing and inspiring crew members who, despite the current hardships, continue to show their dedication to safely serving our customers and taking care of each other. Joanna, over to you. Thank you, Robin. I'd like to start by expressing my profound thanks and gratitude to our crew members for their extraordinary efforts, both on behalf of each other and on behalf of our customers, in delivering day in and day out on the commitments we've made in our safety from the ground up program. Our crew members are the face of JetBlue. And as customers become more confident and return to air travel, we know it will be our crew members who lead the way, convincing the flying public that with the safety measures we have undertaken and observed, air travel is indeed safe for all. We continue to see new data that proves that the controlled aircraft cabin environment limits the transmission of COVID. Because of how often cabin air is continuously recirculated, the top to bottom airflow patterns that avoid spreading bacteria, and the hospital grade HEPA filters, which remove 99.9% .9 of particles and bacteria. Independent research studies by Harvard, IATA, and the Department of Defense, to name just a few, indicate that air travel is safe and the risk of contracting COVID-19 on board an aircraft, particularly when wearing a mask, is very low. Our customers are telling us that we are taking the right actions to keep them safe, with nearly 95% of customers who have flown with us during the pandemic saying they will fly JetBlue again in the very near future. Our net promoter scores are near an all-time high, with a 10-point 10, 10 increase reflecting that our crew members are doing an exceptional job delivering a safe experience during these unique times. This is simply remarkable. Customers trust JetBlue, and we remain their first airline of choice in our key markets. That said, the lack of uniformity in foreign and U.S. state government regulations related to quarantining present additional challenges to recovery, and we are working to support our customers to understand and comply with these rules. And for those that need a coronavirus test prior to travel, we are building partnerships to make COVID testing more accessible. Moving to slide seven. In the third quarter, our revenue declined 76% year over year, a welcome improvement compared to our initial expectation. We saw a modest sequential improvement in August and September demand as new case counts decreased and quarantine restrictions in some states were eased. During the quarter, we were pleased to see states such as Connecticut and Massachusetts roll out testing options to help travelers manage through quarantines. Our Northeast geography continues to be disproportionately impacted, but we believe it will undoubtedly rebound as it always has with past challenges. In terms of key markets, we saw relative strength in our Latin and Caribbean region, especially driven by visiting friends and relative demand. By the end of the quarter, 20 of our 35 international destinations were open to customers from the U.S., albeit with varying travel requirements. We expect more destinations to reopen, subject to foreign government rules. Transcon demand trends modestly improved, following the removal of quarantine measures from travel between New York and California. Lastly, northeast of Florida traffic was a relative source of strength, despite the tri-state quarantine and pricing pressures from elevated industry capacity. Our planning assumption for the fourth quarter is a revenue decline of approximately 65% year over year. We are encouraged by customers responding positively to our promotional activity including an early holiday sale in late September. And although there is still quite a lot of uncertainty about the evolution of coronavirus, we are starting to see the booking curve extend slightly into the upcoming Thanksgiving and December holiday travel period. 
Booking trends remain largely close in, but continue to improve despite the recent rise in case counts. In terms of markets, we continue to see demand recovering quickest to Latin Caribbean and Florida destinations. Turning to capacity on slide eight. We're managing through the volatile demand environment with a laser focus on capacity, planning our schedules a few months out, and adapting it to close-in trends. During the, fourth, sorry, during the third quarter, our flowing capacity declined 58% year-over-year, lower than our initial planning assumptions, as we optimized flying to manage cash burn. As revenue trends improved slightly through the summer months, our system load factor increased to approximately 50% at the end of the quarter. For the fourth quarter, our current planning assumption is for capacity to decline approximately 45% year-over-year, given our current expectations for improved bookings. In the near term, we have reallocated some aircraft to new markets to capture VFR and leisure demand, helping us generate additional cash in our focus cities and in non-traditional markets for JetBlue. These include the approximate 60 routes we announced during the summer months, which we expect will contribute to our cash during this fall and into the holiday season. Our new routes are performing within expectations. To date, our new markets from Newark, particularly Transcon Mint, are performing better than we anticipated. We are seeing similar results in our recently added flying in Florida, Providence, and Hartford. We are excited about our strategic partnership with American Airlines. This alliance is expected to bring more low fares to more customers, allow us to offer improved schedules, offer more options for connectivity in Boston and New York, and offer an enhanced loyalty program. Along those lines, we have just completed the terms of our frequent flyer agreement with American. We look forward to activating the partnership, which, which should help generate cash, recover faster, and preserve jobs in our industry. I want to close by thanking again our incredible crew members for serving our customers with passion in everything that they do. Over to you, Steve. Thank you, Joanna. I'd also like to add my thanks to our crew members and leaders. I could not be prouder of their determination and efforts to keep each other and our customers safe and to ensure the financial sustainability of JetBlue. I'll start on slide 10 with a brief overview of our financial results for the quarter. Revenue was $492 million, down 76% year over year. Operating expenses were down 45% year over year. Excluding the benefit from CARES Act and charges related to fleet and voluntary leave programs for our crew members, operating expenses were down 39% year over year. Gap loss per diluted share was $1.44, and adjusted loss per diluted share was $1.75. Moving on to slide 11. Our average daily cash burn for the third quarter was $6.1 million, ahead of the $7 to $9 million range we anticipated three months ago. This was the result of a modest improvement in demand beginning in August, variable cost savings achieved through a balanced approach to capacity, and the many actions we took to minimize fixed costs across our business. For the fourth quarter, we estimate our daily cash burn to be between four and six million dollars. The sequential improvement reflects our continued actions to minimize cash costs. In addition, as Joanna mentioned, we are cautiously optimistic that the demand trends we saw in August and September will continue, and we are taking consequential capacity actions as needed to manage costs and support our revenue recovery. 
Where we fall within the range will again depend on the pace of the revenue recovery we see during the quarter. At the end of September, our total liquidity included restricted and unrestricted cash was $3.1 billion, or 38% of our 2019 revenue. During the quarter, we drew down $114 million from the CARES Act loan program and raised over $300 million of sale leaseback proceeds on a mix of existing and new aircraft deliveries. In addition, we refinanced our $1 billion term loan facility with two double ETC transactions. We have approximately $1 billion of traditional unencumbered assets on the balance sheet, excluding our loyalty program and subsidiaries. With regard to our loyalty program, we continue to explore parallel paths with both U.S. Treasury and the capital markets to raise up to $2 billion of additional liquidity. Turning to slide 12. During the third quarter, our adjusted operating expenses declined 39% year over year. This excludes the payroll benefit from CARES Act of $332 million, $58 million in charges related to crew member opt-out programs, a $56 million charge related to a fleet impairment, and a $106 million charge related to the loss incurred on sale leasebacks. Since the start of COVID-19, we have offered a significant number of voluntary programs that help us preserve jobs and avoid furloughs. On a cumulative basis, over 6,600 crew members have volunteered for opt-outs or extended leave programs, and we continue to offer similar initiatives to help us adjust resources to support our flying. We are great, grateful to those crew members who stepped up to participate in these programs. Their contribution has been instrumental in preserving the financial health of JetBlue. Our working assumption for the fourth quarter is a reduction in our total operating expenses of approximately 30% year over year. The sequential change is primarily due to scheduled increase in capacity to support revenue, mitigated by our continued efforts to lower fixed costs. As we navigate the current environment with a steady hand, we are shifting our work to rebuilding our margins. We are taking an aggressive approach to improving our cost structure, better aligning our fixed and variable cost base to temporarily lower revenue and capacity. We believe that our work will return JetBlue to profitability with structurally better margins, and our ultimate intention is to achieve superior pre-tax margins versus the industry. We are currently working on our budget for 2021, assuming a prolonged revenue recovery. Using 2019 as a reference, our emphasis will be lowering our costs on a permanent basis, reducing external spend and driving efficiency. Our recent delivery of our structured cost program gives us full confidence that we can emerge from this crisis in an even stronger cost position, which we will believe will reinforce our margin recovery as demand returns. Moving to slide 13. In the third quarter, we took delivery of two A321neos, and in the fourth, we expect delivery of two additional A321neos and our first A220. All of our 321 deliveries in the second half of 2020 are covered by sale leasebacks. The JetBlue fleet currently stands at 265 aircraft, including a recent delivery in early October. Earlier this month, we reached a second negotiated agreement with Airbus to defer additional aircraft and associated capital expenditure 
over the next few years. Since the beginning of the crisis, we have reduced aircraft and non-aircraft capex by approximately $2 billion between 2020 and 2022. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Airbus for their tremendous partnership as we collectively navigate these unprecedented times for our industry. We continue to look forward to bringing both the A321LR and the A220 into the JetBlue fleet to help execute our network strategy and rebuild our margin through their outstanding economics. We are forecasting approximately $200 million of CapEx spend for the remainder of 2020, the majority of which will be funded through sale leasebacks. We continue to expect our CapEx in 2021 to be less than $1 billion. We have laid out our revised order book in the appendix section of our deck. Moving to slide 14. At the end of September, our debt to cap ratio was 58%, a small increase from the prior quarter, driven by sale leasebacks and the recent draw on the CARES Act loan program. Our balance sheet remains amongst the strongest in the industry, and we believe that our current leverage is very manageable. Over the coming years, we intend to return our balance sheet to pre-pandemic levels while making strategic investments in our network and our fleet to accelerate our recovery efforts. We entered the crisis with a strong financial foundation, and while the pandemic has proven to be a truly unprecedented downturn, we believe our efforts, both past and present, will enable us to recover faster and to ultimately re-establish our full earnings potential. As we move towards 2021 and what appears to be a prolonged recovery, we will continue to work to protect JetBlue in the short term while positioning us for success in the years to come. I want to again thank our crew members for their relentless work and also thank our owners for their continued support. With that, we will now take your questions. Thanks, everyone. Uh, Mary, we're ready for the question and answer session with the analysts. Please go ahead with the instructions. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. We will only allow one follow-up question per person. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Saturday 6 with Raymond James. Hey, good morning. Um, I was just on the cash burn, I was wondering, kind of towards the end of September, I think the indication was cash burn was coming in at the lower end of guidance. Is, is the difference uh, that improved so much related to kind of the fair sales that you had at, towards the end of September? Um, and also just what what's the kind of the biggest drivers of the improvement that you're expecting from kind of Q3 to Q4? Is that all revenue or do we see some cost benefits in there as well? Thanks. Good morning, Savvy. Steve here. I'll take that. I think it's about the a fact of the a balanced approach. So the $6.1 million of cash burn that we talked about Q3 was the average of the overall quarter. I think the way I would describe it is that we're getting the balance right between our capacity, our revenue, and our cost structure. And the teams are doing a fantastic job of dynamically managing the capacity to the demand, which is really helping our overall cost, uh, our cost and, and obviously our cash burn performance. As we think about quarter three going into Q4, um, it's a continued steady uh, increase in demand um, that we are sort of forecasting as we sort of come through uh, in terms of Q4. But it's also uh, the ruthless focus that we've had on our overall cost structure. 
um, as we continue to take things down. And that's why we are predicting sequential improvement from the 6.1 million in quarter three to the four to six that we've uh, we forecast for Q4. So big thank you to our crew members. I think the work has been tremendous uh, and it's a balance of both revenue and cost. Makes sense. And, and Steve, if I might follow up, you, you mentioned the kind of trying to monetize the loyalty pro or raise liquidity with the loyalty program. Just wanted to clarify, I think you said with the Treasury or capital market. So if you go with the Treasury, do you, would you just swap out whatever um, collateral you have in there right now? Or is there an opportunity to kind of get the hot more financing there. Um, thank you, Savi. I think the way I would describe our approach, um, with a very steady hand on the tiller, it's about uh, having flexibility. Um, Robin uh, talked about uh, the support we've had from the government in our prepared comments. Um, we continue, obviously, to, to look to the federal government to wonder what's going to happen with CARES 2, uh, and we don't know what the outcome of that is at the moment. We're also not very clear, ultimately, what's going to happen to the demand environment. So for me, it's about having the access to liquidity and continuing to have the flexibility about what to draw and when. And so we are running a parallel path, both with the sort of federal government, but also looking at a public market transaction. Um, with regards to the government, the government loan, uh, we do have access up to $1.9 billion. So we've just drawn uh, a small slither of that, as we did at the, uh, by the end of September, with the $114 million. And so the loyalty program, if we chose to go down that route, uh, would supplement uh, the collateral that we've already uh, committed. Obviously, if we decide to go forward and we, we determine we need extra liquidity and go forward in the public markets, then we'd obviously look at pledging the, the loyalty program in the public markets. But I think the overall message I would give... Uh, the analysts and the investor community is that we've built flexibility, uh, both in terms of the path we take, but also in terms of assessing whether we need the liquidity or not, in terms of the provisions we've put in place to go forward. Got it. All right. Thank you. Our next question is from Hunter Key with Wolf Research. Your line is open. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, Robin, I realize your own pay is, is not your priority right now, um, but how do you think, how are you and the board thinking about what's going to shape drivers of executive compensation over the next few years given, you know, the prior drivers of, of target EPS and target ROIC are, are probably not appropriate uh, for the next few years? Have you started to have those discussions yet to sort of shape what drives the variable component of comp? Sure. Hi, uh, Hunter. Uh, good morning. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, obviously, um, right now we're focused on the short term. Uh, as we said before, and I, I laid out in my comments, you know, we've got, we laid out a three-stage approach to this about, you know, minimizing cash burn, um, rebuilding margins, and then repairing the balance sheet. Um, you know, what we try to do is ensure that uh, executive compensation um, uh, targets align with our priorities as a, as a business. So, that's what we're focused on right now. I actually, you know, I think margins and EPS, I mean, our goal is to get us back on track with that as, as, soon, as, uh, as soon as possible. Uh, I think we've also taken a flexible approach to targets over the years where we've adjusted them to, you know, reflect what, is the, what are the uh, priorities uh, of the time. Um, I will remind you, though, that um, at least for next period of time and longer if we take the government loan, um, the exec comp um, is limited by the, the CARES Act restrictions. And so that uh, 
is also something we have to be mindful of and ensure we comply with. Understood. And then um, <clears throat> I'm sorry for the ridiculous uh, specificity of this follow-up, but um, you, you're striking a tone of, of cautious optimism on holiday bookings. Uh, did you write that script last week? I mean, do you, because it feels like things got maybe a little bit worse over the last few days here, over the weekend at least. Is that Obviously, you've had the opportunity to edit that, of course, knowing what we know, but I just want to make sure we're not sort of like top-ticking demand commentary to set expectations for the fourth quarter, that, that maybe things are sort of worsening a little bit around the periphery. Hans, hey, just yeah. a point of clarity, what are you looking at when you say things got worse over the weekend? Just I'm, looking at, I'm looking at the positivity tests in the tri-state area, New York oh. City area, Connecticut specifically. Again, like I'm, I, this is such oh. a ridiculous, specific question, Robin, I, I know. But, oh, um, yeah, no, no, I just was making sure that uh, you didn't have a secret source of uh, data that we, that we didn't see. Um, no, no. Yeah, I mean, no or your, your point is taken, obviously. Uh, I, I, you've uh, already answered the question. I, I get it. But uh, I, I just I want to make sure that you no, know, no, knowing what we know uh, as of this morning, you still feel like this is realistic. Yeah, let me say one thing, then maybe hand it over to Joanna for and uh, more details. I think that um, what we did see back in the summer was as case counts started to go up in the Sun Belt, you know, we did see an impact on bookings. We've talked about that before. We haven't seen that yet. So as case counts have started to come up around the country, we haven't seen that yet. I think uh, some of that is just there's been a, a big pent-up demand for, for travel. Um, you know, we're also in the Thanksgiving holiday period. There's lots of students coming home and, and, and moving around Thanksgiving and you know, we think that traffic is going to be uh, hold up pretty well. But, you know, as we said before, this is a non-linear recovery path. We expect it to, you know, uh, ebb and wane. We, we uh, you know, we give insight that we, that we think we see. We're pretty plugged into what's going on in, in different jurisdictions around quarantines and sort of try to make an uh, estimate around that. Um, but as you know, Hunter, this thing can move very quickly. You know, I think we have about 28 states or maybe 30 states now where the R rate is sort of at or close to about 1.2 percent. Uh, sorry, 1.2. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we'll see uh, what that means. But right now we're cautiously optimistic and we continue to see uh, that over the uh, last several days, uh, especially into the Thanksgiving and, and holiday period in December. Great. Thanks, Robin. Appreciate it. Our next question comes from Jamie Baker with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, my first question is is sort of a follow-up to Hunter's. You know, I know there's talk about New York abandoning the current quarantine structure or, or modifying it somehow. I've done a couple of quarantines myself. It's really mostly an honor system. You talked about Florida resilience. I mean, what, what I really care about is whether there would be a surge in bookings if if new york rescinded the quarantine your comments maybe make me think otherwise and that maybe people are just blowing off the quarantine blowing off some of the recent headlines any any further color on that yeah i'll uh, hand you over to our uh, quarantine expert uh, joanna jamie for this one thanks <laughs> Hi, jamie. how are you doing um you know maybe to, to provide a little bit of color when california came off the quarantine list we saw upside in bookings. Um, and so as we think about the Northeast um, and potential upside there, that, that's how we see it. I will say that, you know, when the quarantines were put, first put into place, we, we definitely saw 
more cancels and it's slowing. But as people have adjusted to those quarantines, and in the case of Connecticut and Massachusetts with the testing out options, they mm -hmm. understand the ability to reduce the length of the quarantine through a negative test or eliminate it entirely, um, we, we've absolutely seen um, demand coming back. You know, from, from our perspective, we're spending an enormous amount of time um, on testing. And, you know, maybe to provide a little color there, you know, there's a lot of talk about a vaccine. We don't believe a vaccine is necessarily a panacea. We definitely think it's critical to longer-term recovery. Um, but in terms of returning to, you know, something that even looks remotely like a pre-pandemic travel level, we're going to need to have, in the short and medium term, um, a rapid testing strategy that balances the public health considerations, economic recovery, and allows countries and states to, to reopen or relax and eliminate um, what we see as largely ineffective quarantines and, and other travel, travel restrictions. So we're spending a lot of time um, on that right now, spending a lot of time with states and international, many of our Caribbean destinations. Um, but, you know, we believe there's a combination of testing and longer-term vaccine that will be the method by which um, quarantines, which we believe are largely ineffective, will, uh, will be reduced or eliminated. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, second question for Steve on the um, sale leaseback activity. Can you give us an idea as to the economics of the lease component? You know, how monthly rates, uh, you know, in these deals compare to what you were being offered before the downturn? And also, have you thought about any sort of revised, you know, lease versus own ratio going forward just in hopes of, of better variableizing, uh, which I guess is the increasingly popular term, uh, vari variableizing your cost structure. Thanks, Jamie, uh, and good morning. Um, I'd sort of bifurcate the Sally's back activity in terms of the work we did on some of the older vintage aircraft, the older A320s, uh, and the newer NEOs that we've, uh, we've been doing Sally's backs on. I have been pleasantly surprised. I'm sort of not, obviously not going to get into the the, uh, the economics on the, on the call, but um, I've been pleasantly surprised uh, about the transactions that we've managed to go forward with. It, it, we, we did them, obviously, towards the start of the last quarter, um, and the, the work has been done, and there was a, a pretty good demand uh, for JetBlue Metal, so I was pretty pleased with where we ended up with from a sort of rates perspective. Uh, and so the team, and a big shout out to the team, it, there were complex transactions and the work that the teams worked through to make that happen was, was, was outstanding. With regard to your question about Sally's backs, I've been very public about my views of this over the last three years, which we have leaned because of the relatively strong position that JetBlue has had, the strength of our balance sheet, um, the, 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 the cash that we're throwing off from operations, meant that for the aircraft deliveries, we generally uh, steered away from Sally's backs. Obviously, we're in unprecedented times, um, mm -hmm. and we've used this as a balance to continue to generate cash for JetBlue and bring cash into the business. And so, in the short term, we have notched up our proportionality of the fleet that's in the sale leaseback. Um, but I, I certainly, you know, like look, looking forward back to pre-pandemic um, situation, um, we're genuinely more geared towards the, the, sort of the ownership side of things on our, on our fleet going forward. Got it. Thank you both. Take care. Thanks, Jamie. Our next question comes from Dwayne Fenningwick with Evercar ISI. Your line's open. Hey, thank you. Good morning. As, as much as I want to ask another uh, quarantine New York question and, and plan yeah, out my holiday, 
as, as, as much as I want to ask you another quarantine question, I won't. Um, so j- just with respect to the value of a, of a premium cabin right now in the early stages of a recovery, um, if you compare like for like, you know, say A320 high density to A321 or A321 high density to A321 with mint, uh, which one is more profitable? And if you had a clean slate right now, would you be leaning more on density or premium? I'll take it and then ask Dave to add any color. So at this point, um, both are performing um, about the same. You know, we do like Mint uh, in terms of providing the additional space and the additional um, opportunity for customers on longer haul travel. It's performing, Transcon's actually performing pretty well relative to our other markets. Dave, do you have anything you'd like to add? I think you've covered it well. Clearly, customers appreciate the extra space um, and an excellent product that goes with our mint cabin, so that's always been extremely popular. Um, as mentioned before, the Ratsasan Transcon is, is, is coming back. Um, you have to really um, knit out the mix of routes, though, because the high densities, which largely go down in the Caribbean, um, are performing uh, quite well in that region, given the strength of visiting friends and relatives traffic. Um, I think you pushed the pause button on it, but can you just tell us how you're thinking about the A320 refresh and you know w- where that stands today and kind of where that would be in order of your priorities when you when you begin to invest again? Hi, Dwayne. I'll pick that up. It's Steve here. Um, we did initially uh, put the full pause button on the 320 program. Um, as of September, we have started back up again. It's pretty de minimis, Dwayne, to be honest. We're sort of doing one shell at a time. The big thing I would say is the the vast majority of the capital expenditure that we had around the restyle program was already sunk. We'd sort of brought that into the fleet in terms of the kits, the seats, et cetera. Um, but we've um, obviously uh, our customers appreciate the newer cabin uh, as they sort of come through. So we're sort of steadily doing one at a time um, as we sort of go through um, as a very, very slow ramp. Um, and then we'll, you know, depending on the demand environment, depending on the revenue environment, uh, we'll assess in 2021 when we start ramping things up again to complete the fleet. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Dwayne. Have a good day. Our next question comes from Catherine O'Brien with Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for the time. Um, so this one's for Steve. Just a question on your structural cost program. You know, I know before COVID, you'd already locked in above the high end of your 250 to 300 run rate target, and, and that was before the engine deal you've secured since then. But, you know, how should we think about the incremental cost savings we should be expecting next year versus maybe 2019, just just from this program exclusively? So, so what of that cost savings of over 100 of over excuse me 300 million is flowing through in 2020 and then what will be incremental next year? Thanks. Thanks Katie and good morning. Um uh, first of all I would like to say how pleased I am in terms of where we are with our continued focus on our cost structure. The um the the structural cost program set us up extremely well to your point. I think for two reasons. One, it's really embedded a culture of cost consciousness across the whole of JetBlue. And secondly, there was a very significant number of uh, initiatives that we've been able to build upon as we've navigated through the crisis. Um, I think when I stand back and think about our cost structure, outside fuel, obviously the, the biggest costs associated with uh, both sort of labor, our crew members, and our business partners from an external spend perspective. 
And so the way we're thinking about this, Katie, is uh, a couple of things. Number one, taking a real sort of focused look at taking fixed costs out of our business. And we've already started doing a lot of things in the short term, uh, which will stand the test of time. So they truly will be structural, as we sort of did before. And building on the $320 million uh, that we uh, delivered coming into the 2020 year. The way we think about this is obviously we'll continue to use that, those initiatives and additional cost savings as we go through 21. The thing we're thinking about is as we get at some point in 2022 and back to some sort of normality um, around capacity, is getting back on that industry-leading curve in terms of unit cost progression. You know, we were leading consensus for the whole industry in 2020. We're top of the industry in 2019, uh, and we're looking forward to at some point in 2022 getting back onto that unit cost progression that you saw in early 2020. Okay, got it. And then probably another one for you, Steve, actually. Just on the aircraft deferrals, you know, with, with the NEO delays over the last couple of years and then production cuts um, in the COVID era, were any of these deferrals at the request of Airbus asking to push back deliveries, or, or were these all pushed back at the request of JetBlue? And, and then should we assume that any of that, you know, $2 billion reduction in CapEx is concessions from delays, or are those all aircraft just moving out of, out of the period? Uh, thanks, Kate. And I know I mentioned this in my prepared comments. I do, I do want to, again, thank our partner, Airbus. I think we've navigated this crisis together. Um, it's been a partnership, as we've, got, we've had numerous discussions over the preceding months. Just to keep this very simple, it's shells, right? We have moved over 50% of our A321 order book out of 2020 and 2022 to a point in the future, uh, which has delivered um, the reduction of the sort of $2 billion-ish of CapEx over those two years. So um, it's been a, a joint process. Um, this is purely around deferral of aircraft. Uh, and I feel now that we've got the, the balance right between uh, navigating the crisis we sort of go through this and bringing in sort of high-margin, high-return aircraft to, to supplement the JetBlue fleet. Okay, understood. Thank you. Our next question comes from Joseph Dunardi from Stifo. Your line is open. Oh, thanks. Good morning. Uh, two easy ones for me. Um, Steve, what level of ASMs uh, do you think you need to fly to get Casamex back to 2019? Um, well, in terms of um, – it's, it's interesting when we sort of look at it with regards to sort of 2022. There's a couple of things I would sort of say. So, um, Obviously, it depends on the sort of demand and capacity recovery, but having deferred over sort of two billion, around $2 billion of deferred CapEx, we are expecting less growth than we had with regards to the pre-COVID environment. And so the denominator undoubtedly is going to be lower than we had expected in 22. Um, but in terms of our overall cost structure, the initiatives that we're sort of taking going forward uh, puts us in... Uh, good shape, and that's why we're sort of assuming that we'll get back to sort of that level in, in 2022. But it's very, very early at this point, Joe, to start sort of thinking about exactly what capacity we're intending to fly. But this is the, uh, this is the plan, uh, the planning assumption that we're working through, uh, and we'll continue to evolve that as we navigate through sort of 2021 and getting towards that. But I remain confident in the tremendous work that the company and our crew members are doing. 
to, to wrestle with our overall cost structure to make sure we drive back to those efficiencies. Okay, Steve, is it cl is it closer to 80% of 2019 capacity you need to get to, or is it 95%? I think the way I would sort of describe it is um, we have anticipated, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the demand environment, but by the time we're getting back into sort of 22, I would expect us to be nearer to the higher end of the sort of 2019 capacity. Okay, and then and then maybe a question for for Dave or Joanna, just the, the the mix of business versus leisure from a revenue standpoint for you all, and then um, kind of the importance of the business traffic to your pre-COVID earnings power. Thank you. Sure. So um, it's it's largely leisure. I mean, there's very de minimis business uh, travel in there, and you know, as we've said since the onset of this pandemic, you know, we do believe leisure VFR traffic. Um, will be the sort of path to recovery out of this well well before business uh, travel. VFR tends to be uh, quite resilient in times like this, and we're seeing that um, absolutely play out. Our next question comes from Brandon Oblensky with Barclay. line is open. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, Joanna, I want to come back to a response you had to one of the questions. I think you mentioned uh, testing. You know, do you guys think that could play a bigger role, and can you be proactive in helping, you know, bridge the gap between authorities and, you know, travel restrictions? And I guess as a follow-up to that, who's going to bear the cost of that if it is a solution? Sure. So um, we are absolutely um, being proactive with regard to testing. Um, from a few angles. Uh, first, we're um, actively working with governments, states, whether it's states or, or international um, governments, to put into place a consistent testing framework. Um, first, that customers understand. Part of the challenge is they're all different, so that creates a level of confusion for customers. Um, and then ultimately, that um, countries and states will, upon providing proof of a negative test, allow a customer to test out of um, or reduce the length of um, these quarantines. Um, right now, um, as we see it, you know, there's home testing options, which um, we've announced one, and we're working on a few others, and then also looking at pre-departure testing facilities um, in the airport environment. There's a number of locations that have rolled those out. We're also exploring that. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we, we believe we need a cost-effective, so very inexpensive, rapid, think five minutes, antigen test that can accurately detect covid in both symptomatic and asymptomatic people. Um, so ideally a test that can be applied on a pre-departure basis or even one that you could use in your home. Think of like a lateral flow pregnancy test that you could actually take before you leave um, that you could do on your own. And I think that's how we see kind of the, the future moving. Um, you know, in terms of who would bear the cost, obviously it depends on um, whether it's a government initiative, whether it's an airline initiative. Right now the cost of tests um, they're all PCR tests, uh, largely are about $150, give or take, you know, that we're, we're, we're not adding um, any kind of revenue share or anything of that. Um, we're just passing on the cost of the test to customers when they purchase through Vault, which is our current partner. Um, but, you know, we haven't explored how we would cost share or any, anything around testing. We think you need a very inexpensive $10, $15 test. And, and the key here is a test that can detect uh, COVID in asymptomatic people. Right now, there are not any tests out there that are antigen rapid tests that can actually detect COVID in asymptomatic people. The PCR test that many of you take that we take, you know, that's sort of the gold standard. That's pretty expensive. It needs to be administered by a clinician, by a doctor. And we do not see that as, um, as you know, a longer-term cost-effective solution. 
you know, I guess you kind of answered it, but there there is a lot of price elasticity there, right? If if things get too expensive. Sorry, this thing is clicking. Um, so a lot of price elasticity with testing. Yeah, I guess on your customer base, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's something that customers necessarily are going to be willing to. Um, it's not something I think we envision passing on through our fair or anything in that nature. This is something I think we, we're, as we are doing right now, setting up a partnership with various companies, and customers would reach out and directly procure the test from those companies and pay for it on their own. All right, thank you. Our next question comes from Mike Lindenberg with Deutsche Bank. Your line is open. Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, Joanna, I thought I heard you mention that you had um, sort of finished up the work with American on the loyalty program, and I'm just curious, what elements of the partnership can you roll out now before DOT, DOJ approval, or or can you? Can you, can you proceed um, without their blessing at this point? Sure, I'm going to have Scott take that one. Hey, Mike, it's uh, Scott. How are you? Um, so, again, I think we um, we want to be respectful of the, um, you know, of what we're doing with, with regulators. Um, and, uh, again, I think as we move forward with that, you know, obviously we're excited about all the elements of this, including uh, frequent traveler. But I think the, um, you know, our, our focus obviously is bringing, you know, low fares and, and, and growth to the northeast points and a faster recovery. Um, so, you know, again, I think it's sort of what we could do, um, you know, we're moving toward, a, a, I think, a close on this, and uh, I think we'll, we'll be in a better position to kind of move forward, um, you know, more holistically. Uh, so, um, you know, I don't think it's a matter of what we can do versus what we want to do. I, 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 I believe that we're moving forward on a time frame that allows us uh, to, to kind of move in a way that makes sense. Okay, great. That's helpful. And then just on my second question, and Scott, this is maybe for you uh, and or Dave. Um, you know, when you look at just your yields relative to others, um, you guys are running a lot, a bit higher. I mean, you've been in positive territory for the past couple quarters, um, but your loads are also a lot lower. And I realize that, you know, some of that may be a function of the uh, blocking the middle seat. And I know that, you know, I think it was mid-October, you sort of modified that to go from blocking the middle seat to, you know, maybe booking up to, I think, 70% or something. And then it looks like maybe in early December um, that goes away. I haven't seen anything, you know, maybe, you know, to counteract that. How should we think about, though, the yield trends as that lifts? Are, are we going to get, you know, as we move into the fourth quarter, will we see lower yields, higher Higher, but higher loads, and you know, ultimately a a, a better rasm there. Um, I mean, are, do you feel like maybe you're leaving some revenue on the table because uh, you have this middle seat block? So, sort of a multi-prong question. However, best you can answer. Thank you. Sure, I'll take it, and then I'll ask Dave or Scott to add some color. So, you know, as we've said since the onset, the middle seat block has largely been about um, rebuilding customer confidence and travel. Um, we absolutely recognize that longer term, it's not something that's sustainable. Um, and that as loads come back, um, the cost of the middle seat block um, is, is quite expensive. And so, you know, what you've seen us announce um, through December 1 is that we are living seats um, just below 70% um, and we'll continue to um, increase those lids longer term based upon um, what uh, the re recent safety studies have come out saying that, you know, the aircraft cabin is inherently safe, safer than most um, indoor events. And so as we see into the holidays, upside, frankly, um, as seats open up, both in terms of fare but also in terms of load. 
Great. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks. Our next question comes from Joe Cayado with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks very much. Um, Steve, your, your Q4 average daily cash burn outlook excludes any one-time costs associated with severance or employee separation-related expenses. Is that right? And, and if so, could you just tell us what those expenses are expected to be in Q4? And, uh, and if you got it for 2021 as well, please. Hi, Joe. Steve, you're correct. It's excluded. Um, we actually, obviously, in those sort of public statement, and I, I went through it in the, pre, the prepared comments, the opt-out provision um, that we talked about, special item in Q2, is $58 million. Um, and so that is the absolute lion's share of what you're going to see with regard to that in terms of what we know at the moment. Um, we've, our crew members have really sort of stepped up, and I want to take this opportunity to thank them to support us through that. Um, obviously, with regard to sort of 21, we, we're not sort of getting into any of that yet because we don't know what the future holds. Uh, but the lion's share, the absolute lion's share, has already been booked in Q3. Got it. Thanks for clarifying that. And then just a quick follow-up, maybe for Joanna. Um, I think as part of your, your revenue initiatives, um, you highlighted in the slide the, the, an upgrade of the revenue management optimization system. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, d didn't you recently upgrade the, the RM system in the last year or two? And so can you describe exactly what this upgrade is and, and what capabilities you're unlocking with that? Thanks for the time, everyone. Sure, Dave Clark is very excited to talk about our new RM system, so I'll pass it over to him. Sure, thanks for the question. Um, as mentioned, we're in the process of upgrading to uh, Sabre's newest uh, version of the revenue management system called Revenue Optimizer. Um, we have been talking about this for a few years. This is part of our continuous improvement of revenue management tools, which was part of our 2018 Investor Day. Um, it's a more sophisticated system. We'll have better abilities to forecast demand, understand customer elasticity, things like that. Um, planning to cut over later this quarter, and reworking the, the team process, the business process, and, and the team structure to maximize the benefits of the new tool. So I'm excited uh, later this quarter when we um, start using it in production. Thanks for the color. Our next question is from Andrew Dodara with Bank of America. Your line is open. Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, my first question is for, for Robin or, or Joanna. Um, just on, you know, obviously, leisure has been been leading the recovery here. General consensus is that leisure continues to outperform corporate over the next few years. Uh, you clearly have this leisure-oriented network, and based on your comments today, it doesn't really seem like maybe your northeast flying is as big of a hindrance as maybe it could be. But just when I look at your total revenue growth here, it's been more in line with network carriers and your 4Q kind of. Uh, projection is similar to them as well. I guess my question is, you know, what do you think is the catalyst for JetBlue to begin uh, to outperform on the top line? Or do you think just the, this big fight for the leisure traveler might prevent that from happening? Would love to get your thoughts there. Yeah, uh, no, thanks. I'll, uh, I'll maybe uh, start that and then uh, pass over to uh, Joanna. You know, um, look, the Northeast issue has been very, very significant. You know, we saw in Q2, for example, and we all know this, um, how uh, the Northeast was the most impacted in terms of uh, uh, coronavirus. And, uh, you know, I think we did a really, really good job in Q2 bringing down our OPEX uh, uh, accordingly. Um, you know, as we've gone into Q3, you know, we are still, whilst 
Of course, um, the Northeast states have done a terrific job over the last few months on uh, keeping the case count down. Uh, you know, there are still significant parts of New York that people uh, come and visit that aren't open. So, you know, Broadway, for example, is shut down well into next year. So I, I do think that some of the uh, demand trends that we've seen into the Northeast, both business and, and leisure. And then we also have, the, you know, Joanna talked about the quarantines. And, yes, you know, compliance with the quarantines, I would say, is uh, mixed at best, and I'm being kind. But nevertheless, it is a, a barrier for um, um, uh, 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 people to fly. Uh, and we also see, you know, positive traction when states create test-out exemptions, exemptions um, for quarantine, that, you know, that is a positive catalyst. So. I can't understate. I mean, I think the team had done a terrific job mitigating the impact. You know, we were the first airline to redeploy uh, a large amount of new flying, those 30 new routes. We've done it again. Um, but, but, you know, and those act as a, a good mitigant. And so I think that um, we will continue to do that. We will continue to um, uh, manage that accordingly. Um, but we're going to continue, I think, to see uh, headwinds into the uh, northeast uh, for the uh, you know coming for the coming uh, months and uh, you know I think as we think about Thanksgiving we're encouraging states to think about a testing uh, option. I mean if people are coming back for Thanksgiving and quarantining at home, yes, but you know what we're seeing now of course is virus spread in in people's homes. So actually testing either before you leave or when you get here actually could have I think a really positive impact on public health, as well as helping us, I think, uh, uh, deal with some of the demand headwinds that quarantines bring. John, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think I just add leisure VFR is what we are built to do. It's what we uh, were founded on, and we've got a product, a price point, a cost structure, all built for leisure. And as we navigate through this crisis and see that that's where the demand is, we are uniquely positioned to um, to meet that demand and um, and recover more quickly than carriers that are overly reliant on um, on business travel. Understood. Thank you. And then uh, my second question, just for for Steve, I, I know you get this, you probably get this question a lot, but just wanted to get your thoughts on where you think kind of liquidity requirements move to, sort of on the back end of the the pandemic. And I ask because. You clearly have a couple of years worth of liquidity on your balance sheet right now at fourth quarter cash burn levels. So just trying to get us just trying to figure out how quickly the balance sheet can be repaired once we start to see demand recover more robustly here. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. And I'll, I'll make this brief. Um, I've, again, been delighted with the work the Treasury team have done. Uh, I, I've described it before as having a steady hand on the tiller. We've been flexible, we've been measured in terms of how we've gone through and raised liquidity. Coming into the crisis with one of the strongest balance sheets in the industry, um, we kept about a 10 to 12% cash of trailing 12 months revenue. I think undoubtedly, Andrew, um, we are in a position where the industry as a whole will be rethinking that going forward. Obviously, we're in a once-in-a-generational uh, pandemic, um, but at the same time, I think those that have had stronger balance sheets like us coming into this um, will obviously benefit going forward. So we'll certainly assess that as we come out the other side. During the pandemic, um, as we are at the moment, having over $3 billion in the bank um, and sort of navigating that through, make sure that I can sleep well at night. Um, and balance sheet repair is absolutely at the forefront of our thinking. You know, we've got to, we've got to sort of get down to uh, eliminate the cash burn 
really focus on the margins and start driving positive cash from operations. Um, but as Robin said in his prepared comments, the balance sheet repair is right at the front of uh, our thinking as we come out this side of the crisis. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Our last question comes from Miles Walton from UBS. Nirvana is open. Great, thanks. So um, the last couple of quarters, uh, last quarter and then this upcoming quarter that you're looking at, you're, you're going to a, a 30% incremental drop-through. And Steve, maybe just looking into 21, is that an appropriate drop-through to be looking at for operating earnings relative to revenue growth? Or are there other costs uh, perhaps coming back to the system that you've maybe avoided or better cost um, savings that are going to be in the structural run rate? Hi, Miles. I think um, I'd start off with a couple of the headwinds, I think, that generally people have got to sort of think about. Obviously, in the very, very short term, um, you're going to sort of have a bit of a peak in terms of medical costs as you sort of come out the back end of the quarter where people have put um, some, um, certain, some elective procedures off, etc. But the biggest two that I think we've got to navigate in the sort of immediate future is rent and landing fees where you think about the sort of public en entities and the airports where they've had less traffic going through. So that puts natural pressure on the cost structure. And in addition, as the volumes of our customers go up, thinking about sort of um, the amount of sort of cleaning uh, services and initiatives that the industry as a whole has got to put forward. So when I think about headwinds, they're probably the, the couple. In terms of the work that we're doing in terms of the, the tailwinds, that's really, as I've said before in my previous uh, answers to questions, we've done a tremendous job at JetBlue through the structural cost program. Uh, we've really taken a hammer to some of the bigger cost items. Um, think about engine maintenance, think about heavy maintenance, think about taking fixed costs out, but also predominantly over the last few months, we've been shifting fixed costs to variable. Um, we've done some outsourcing from an airport standpoint. We've done some insourcing to drive millions of dollars of benefits in our tech-ups organization. We're bringing some heavy maintenance work. So we're leaving no stone unturned to make sure we get back onto that sort of 2020, early 2020 trajectory as we get into the sort of 22 financial year. So uh, I'm pleased with the progress we're making. Okay. I'll leave it one. Thanks. Thank you very much, Mark. And that concludes our third quarter 2020 conference call. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. And again, that will conclude today's conference. Thank you for your participation.